0: From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is Resound.
1: Parkin' junkin.
0: So there it goes, and it's going up, up, heads back down.
1: Right into the pond, about a thousand feet away.
0: Great radio is everywhere, but you can't be, which is why Resound collects, curates, and brings you the best stories from around the world. We listen to everything we can get our ears on, on the air, the internet, via podcast, even old tapes tucked away in dusty attics, and share it with you each week on Resound.
1: This really goes much deeper than digging through the trash for something to eat. Uh, It's about the choices that you make in life.
0: I don't really,
2: I dumpster just because I don't have money to pay for food. I mean, I'm not vegetarian either. I don't really like vegetables.
0: This week, we remember a great journalist, Matt Power. In March 2014, Matt died suddenly at the age of 39 while on assignment for Men's Journal magazine in Uganda. Matt first came to Third Coast's attention in 2002 when his work appeared on WNYC's The Next Big Thing, hosted by Dean Olsher. His radio stories were quixotic, funny, and mesmerizing. His gift was both in his writing style, that was relaxed, sure, warm, and intimate. And in the slow cooked sound of his
1: voice. There's an old Japanese folktale that says if you fold a thousand paper cranes for someone, that they'll be granted a long and healthy life. So I started folding.
0: Fearlessness and appetite for adventure eventually led him to far flung places for magazines like Outside, National Geographic Adventure, Harper's, Men's Journal, and the New York Times Magazine. But today, we bring you a few of his unforgettable radio stories. You are in for a treat. Matt Power's medium of choice was the written word. But when he crossed paths with WNYC's The Next Big Thing, a show that ran for five years, he started dabbling in radio. And are we glad he did? He wasn't in the field for long, He stopped producing radio when The Next Big Thing went off the air in 2006. But while he was working in our world, he made a deep impression on those who heard his work. Here's host Dean Ulsher.
3: Matt came to us through a producer at WNYC who had known his work. He had written a piece about Allen Ginsberg and a personal relationship that he had with him. And... Uh, she thought that this would make a good piece of radio and she introduced him to us. And he was really unlike anybody else we had ever seen in the public radio world. And that personality, you know, pretty quickly came out in the radio pieces that he did. Um, He had this really funny combination of just sort of solemnity and goofiness at the same time. And we thought, oh, we want to turn him into a radio person.
0: The first story Matt Power wrote for The Next Big Thing was called Holy Soul, about his relationship with beat poet Allen Ginsberg. It was adapted from an article he wrote for Hebe magazine, and as soon as we heard it, we knew that a new, unique voice had just been added to the talent pool. In fact, we liked it so much, we put it on the first Resound show ever in 2004. Here
1: is Holy Soul. It's been five years since Allen Ginsberg died. I've lived in New York that whole time. Everywhere I go in the city, I feel him. I feel his presence uh, in Tompkins Square Park and the junkies there and the punk kids cooking food for the homeless. Even in strange places like uh, the, the pigeons flying around the smokestacks at the Con Ed plant up on 14th Street. Something in him has been infused into the city for me. In September, I, I was living on 3rd Street at the time, and every morning you would wake up and, and the smoke was there from ground zero. You could smell it. And I imagined that line from Howell, it, it kept coming back to me, where he, where he talks about the people who were burned alive in their innocent flannel suits.
4: Who cut their wrists three times unsuccessfully, gave up, and were forced to open antique stores where they thought they were growing old and cried who are burned alive in their innocent flannel suits on Madison Avenue.
1: I imagined him down there at Grand Zero, meditating or proposing that they plant a sunflower field in in that void there. Someone once asked him if he minded, in his last years, if he minded living alone in New York with no family, and he made this expansive gesture to the street corner and, and said, this is my family. I was 15 when I first met Allen Ginsberg. It was at my cousin Isaac's bar mitzvah. He had been friends with my aunt Elsa since the 50s. She worked at Grove Press in New York and arranged poetry readings. Everyone in my family had this sort of hushed reverence around him, and I knew that he was someone important, but I had never read any of his poems before. I didn't know anything about him, although I kind of thought of myself as a poet. I remember he put on a yarmulke, which I thought was a really interesting gesture for someone who spent the last 30 years of their lives as a devout Buddhist. At the reception afterward, we were introduced and we sat down together. It was in a Middle Eastern place. And we were eating stuffed grape leaves and and talking. And my parents were right in the middle of this pretty ugly divorce at the time. So I remember telling him, uh, asking him what he thought I should do about the situation with my parents and he just looked at me and said, you look lovable, you should seek out people to love. Not long after he asked me if I wanted to take a walk with him. I was 15 years old at the time. I didn't think anything was particularly strange about it, but Years later, when I mentioned it to him again, he, he asked me if I thought he had been hitting on me that night. Four years after that first time I met him, uh, my aunt, who lives in Cambridge, gave me a call and said that Alan was coming into town. He was doing a book tour in Boston. So I, I drove down and... I spent the whole afternoon at her house pacing around, waiting for him to get there, and I wanted to make some kind of a good impression. There's this line from Patterson, William Carlos Williams, where he includes two letters written to him by Ginsburg, when Ginsburg was around my age at the time. I know you will be pleased, he wrote, to realize that at least one actual citizen of your community has inherited your experience in his struggle to love and to know his own world city. I wanted to fit into Ginsburg's work in that way. Be part of the continuum of American poetry and to and sort of assume from my own friends and myself whatever place that was. He arrived at the door. He has a cloth bag full of poetry over one shoulder and he's holding his harmonium, uh, which later I would see at Sotheby's auction get auctioned off for $15,000. and. I would gotten much taller than him since the last time I had seen him. He seemed much slighter, but there was this this real deep, rich quality to his voice that that was uh, much bigger than his physical persona, you know. He had a tight itinerary while we were in Boston, so we went right away over the Charles to a recording studio to do a spoken word album.
4: Was it Pope in one of his many clever lines?
1: At the recording studio, I sat for eight hours while Ginsberg, who was in a soundproof booth, read all 242 choruses of Mexico City Blues, this book that Kerouac had written while living in a garret in Mexico City 40 years before.
4: For I will write in my will... I regret that I was not able to love money more. This is a man who was
1: at the time 69 years old reading poetry for eight hours straight. And at the end, there were these, these great uh, like mournful choruses about Charlie Parker dying. 239th chorus.
4: Charlie Parker looked like Buddha. Charlie Parker who recently died laughing at a juggler on the TV after weeks of strain and sickness, was called the perfect musician. And his expression Ginzburg was, was, was crying
1: squirrel. inside the and sound booth, the and you could hear him in between a the takes just Anyhow, softly crying no to difference.
4: himself. Charlie Parker, forgive me. Forgive me for not answering your eyes, for not having made an indication of that which you can devise. Charlie Parker, pray for me. Pray for me and everybody in the nirvanas of your brain where you hide indulgent
1: and huge. No Charlie Parker. By 2 a.m. we finished the recording session and we went back over to Cambridge. My aunt went to bed and Ginsberg and I stayed up sitting around the kitchen table. I remember asking him how he could read poetry for so long, and he said, you just have to breathe properly and, and go with each line. And then he said, I could read you some more if you like. We walked upstairs to the top floor of the house, and he was tired, but he grabbed a stack of poetry books off of the shelf. I sat on the floor with this nervous lump in my throat. I almost knew it was going to happen, but I couldn't tell who was seducing who just listening to the poetry. You know, seduction is always this kind of a dance. I mean, I remember him telling me later that he was surprised by the whole thing himself. But you couldn't be a a teenage kid at that time and read his poems and not know that that's what he wanted from you, you know? We talked about poetry, and I asked him what he thought I should write about. And he said, you should write about your love for your friends. It was almost four in the morning, but I was wide awake. He offered to show me how to meditate. we sat for a few minutes while he, he lectures me. He had this this kind of gently exasperated tone that he would get a lot, you know, keep your spine straight and let everything hang down from your head and breathe and don't close your eyes, and was ordering me around while I was trying to meditate. And of course, I'm sitting there. Uh, I wonder if I'm meditating now. Maybe now I'm meditating. And at the same time, he was holding me, and I was, I was afraid to look him in the eyes, you know. So he shut out the light and asked me if I wanted to lie down next to him. And there was this incredible nervous feeling. Like I didn't know exactly what I wanted out of this encounter, but I knew somehow it was, it was meant to happen, like uh, this connection with all these, these ghosts of my imagination, everything I had ever thought, poetry was supposed to be about something in the moment made me at least want to pretend that i was fearless so i i laid down in the bed with my shoes on my heart was racing i felt I, I don't know like i was being married or something i was afraid but unbearably curious at the same time ginsburg got up and he went over to the sink and he started washing his socks which is something i've never seen anyone do before and uh, it seemed strange for me, to, for someone who would read poems in front of a, a rapt audience of a thousand people to be standing there at four in the morning washing his socks out in the sink. He came back and said, do you mind if I take my clothes off? I said I didn't mind. He sat cross-legged next to me in the bed, naked, looking kind of like a, an Indian guru in the, in the lamplight from the street. I remember that I reached up and undid the buckle on my overalls. Years later, he said to me he thought that that was audacious of me. And the funny thing about kissing a man 50 years older than you is how normal it feels. He, had, uh, he was smaller than I was and had this sort of soft, hairless body. He felt like a 17-year-old's. He was infused with this electric energy that I had never felt before. So I'm lying there and I'm trying to make sense of the whole situation and and Ginsburg says, Socrates said that the best teaching is done in bed. And I envisioned it as sort of this this ancient exchange between youth and and old age. Ginsburg kind of offset the romance of that notion by following up with, I'm a vampire sucking your youthful energy. He really didn't seem like a vampire after all. And after the initial shock of the whole experience, um, my heart slowed down and I felt more or less at ease and in a way initiated into some rite, some sort of tradition. It was sunrise almost and the birds were just starting to sing and uh, I was getting ready to go back to my room downstairs. And I remember asking him kind of nervously, oh, you won't tell anyone. And he just looks at me and laughs and said, I'm not a fink. So in the morning, we met at the breakfast table, and we were both exhausted and never said a word about it. And it was like that for the whole week while he was in Boston. I would drive him around the city to book signings, interviews. I was really happy to be there. He was a poetry rock star, way better than a regular rock star. I tried to play it cool, but I would still swell with pride when he he took my arm walking out of a reading and... Every night, we would return to Cambridge and return to the upstairs room. And there was nothing strange about it to me, but I still didn't want anyone in my family to know. I felt like it was too strange and bright of a secret to share with them. When the book tour in Boston ended, Ginsburg went on to Chicago, and I went back home to Vermont. So time passed. I went on with my life at college, and I saw Alan whenever our paths happened to cross. We became friends in, in a platonic way, and it's, it's those memories really that, that I think of more when I think about Alan now. I remember him asking me, uh, have you ever heard of Beck? He was totally excited about Beck and had gone to several of his concerts. I was in college at the time, and he knew more about Beck than I did. The last time I spent with him was a week in the winter of 1997, in January. He came to Elsa's house to see his cardiologist. It was cold, snowy, and he he could barely shuffle down the street. I remember we went shopping for Tibetan rugs for his loft, and it took a half hour to walk the three blocks down to the store. He wore this heart monitoring machine and a bag on his shoulder, and it recorded every beat over a twenty four hour period on a, on this roll. I transcribed poems for him that week. Uh, typing them out of his journal onto a computer, and I remember showing him a short story I had written, and he told me to drop all the sentimental bullshit and tell the story. Alan was still at Elsa's when I had to leave to go to an internship in Austria. I remember kissing him goodbye on the lips and he stood in the doorway as my airport taxi pulled away. Three months later, I got an email from my aunt saying that Alan had been diagnosed with terminal liver cancer and that he only had six months to live. There's an old Japanese folktale that says if you fold a thousand paper cranes for someone, that they'll be granted a long and healthy life. So I started folding. And four days and 600 cranes later, I got another email from Elsa, which said, uh, <laughs> Akeb us in a which didn't, of course, make any sense. But I looked at the keyboard and translated it to Alan is in a coma. She was crying so hard when she wrote it that she couldn't see what she was typing. And the next day he died. And I remember going out into the woods and, sobbing almost as much for myself as for him because I was moving to New York that summer and I had this vision of you know spending time with him walking around with him going shopping for him and knowing him for years having him be my tour guide of New York City and suddenly he was gone. During that last visit together in Cambridge, I sat for hours at the table and made little origami animals for Alan. We watched The Simpsons. There was none of the flaring seduction of our earlier encounters. I've wondered since then if I should have gone to him in those nights, if I had some sort of youthful energy that could have brought back some of his strength. But I didn't. It seemed to me then that the the last sort of reserves of his old self had concentrated in his voice, and that was still as vibrant as it had always been, even though his body was incredibly frail. There was a time when it, it felt like he was mine, but of course, he was always everybody's. Alan belongs to everybody who, who sees, the way he put it, uh, the dearness of the vanishing moment. It reminds me of something that he wrote when Kerouac died 30 years ago about the role of poetry. And what's the work? Ease the pain of living.
0: Holy Soul by Matt Power, produced for WNYC's The Next Big Thing. This story first appeared in Hebe magazine. In his mid-20s, Matt was unusually insightful. Again, Next Big Thing host, Dean Olsher.
3: You know, he was talking about some pretty heavy stuff in a, such an accessible way, and in such a tasteful way, you know, it's almost remember in, you know, Woody Allen movies, whenever uh, it was time for him to have sex with somebody, you know, and he would turn the lights out and and left to your imagination what was going to happen next. Uh, I think about about Matt's piece in the same way. You know, he, he gave you everything you needed to figure it out without having to be explicit about it. I thought that was so sophisticated of him.
0: Let's listen to another story by Matt, a personal favorite of mine. It stayed with me for years. For one thing, Matt introduced me to the concept, now kind of old news, of dumpster diving by choice.
1: My name is Matt, and I eat trash. I became a dumpster diver a couple summers ago when a friend of mine showed me this great bakery dumpster out in Brooklyn. Every night around midnight, a guy would push a rack out of the truck bay that was piled high with all sorts of bread you'd have slabs of ciabatta, roasted garlic baguettes, kalamata olive sourdough, and just dump them still hot into this dumpster. There was another dumpster next to it that was just filled with uncooked dough, and for hours afterwards, it would rise up and lift the lid off of the dumpster like some blob from a B-horror movie. On any given night in New York, there's enough food lying out on the street to make paying for it seem utterly ridiculous. We set off from the Lower East Side on beat-up old bikes. Some people had messenger bags. Some people had milk crates strapped to their handlebars to bring the booty home at the end of the night. There was so much that the only way you could possibly describe it would be...
5: Shamefully abundant. More food than you could ever possibly eat. Outside, I got a case of dried beans. Some of them I gave away. I I met some guy dumpstering at Gristiti's. I offered him some beans and he offered me some chicken. How often do you go dumpster dabbing? A couple nights a week. I can usually spend about an hour, hour and a half a night, and get enough food for a couple days. What percentage of your meals do you get out of the trash?
1: I'd say about a hundred, 95% to 100%. Uh-huh. Well, How much money do you spend?
5: You don't spend any money on food? I think this year on food I spent a total of $6, um, $3 a piece on two energy drinks for one night when I had to stay awake all night. That was my complete food budget
6: for the year
1: you got to understand this. Adam is doing this because he wants to, not because he has to. For these guys, it's it's a choice, not a necessity. It's it's almost a game. A game to see how much stuff you can get for free. When the pizza place pulls down its shutters and leaves a bag of slices on the sidewalk. Where to get an unlimited supply of day-old bagels. When the health food store tosses out all its past-date yogurt. You never use the term expired when you're dumpster diving.
2: What street is this?
5: Do necessarily want to put this on record for like... No, <coughs> i just put in my notebook.
1: They guard the locations of their dumpstering spots as jealously as secret fishing holes or buried treasure.
5: I have a photocopied map with all the good dumpsters, descriptions. Anyone coming into town from somewhere else can, can get hooked up right away and not have to worry about finding something to eat.
1: And it works both ways. Whenever these guys travel to another city, there's a sort of dumpster underground that lets them know where the best spots are to find something to eat.
5: Madison, Wisconsin had great dumpstering there. There was a an oddwalla juice dumpster. Minneapolis is really good, vegan um, sandwiches to fortune cookies. Little Rock has alright dumpsters, but in Oakland there's um, the Cliff Bar Factory. In Santa Cruz there's just um. Soy company, on any given night, you can pull out marinated tofu, chocolate soy milk, tempeh, and all, all soy dogs and all that stuff.
1: Maybe this makes them sound like the kind of people who would go to Seattle and protest the WTO. Sure, they do that too, but that's not the whole story. For people who don't pay for their food, they also have pretty expensive tastes.
5: See, the, the sushi, That's that's a big, big plus... It's so awesome being able to give people chocolate, (laughs) wrapped up chocolate. We're all over Portland getting caviar, biscottis, cinnamon, almonds.
1: Their culinary preferences sort of reflect their ambivalence towards society. In fact, to them, it's a logical reaction to the wastefulness of modern society. But it's not as though they have any kind of unified front. Their opinions on what they do are as diverse as the contents of the dumpsters themselves.
5: I see myself as something that's outside of capitalism. Mm. I wouldn't call that. With dumpster diving, we're extremely dependent on capitalism. Um, we're all the scavengers and bottom feeders of that society.
1: This really goes much deeper than digging through the trash for something to eat. Uh, it's about the choices that you make in life, politically, even what you want to eat. But for example, a lot of the dumpster divers that I met were vegans.
5: Veganism is where you don't eat any animal products, be it meat, dairy, fish, anything with eggs in it, anything like that.
1: But this isn't garden variety veganism. In fact, it's a sort of new denomination where if you get something from the trash, you enter a new moral universe.
5: If it's from the trash, it's not like you're paying for it and supporting it with your money. People call it freeganism. So an example would be they're rifling through the Trader Joe's dumpster and they find a carton of eggs, and they're stoked because deep down inside they love eggs, but (laughs) they don't want to buy eggs. So that's free.
1: Remember now, this is a new denomination, so the law is not yet set in stone. Is dumpster food kosher? Um, I mean, according to the laws of Judaism, I think if it's made kosher, it's kosher. I mean, I don't think the dumpster breaks any laws of kosher. You're not kosher anyway, so you don't really worry about it. I don't keep kosher. All right, some philosophical ruminations might be a bit of a stretch. Still, there's an unwritten ethical code that they all follow.
5: If you care about where you're dumpstering and want to ever come back, you're going to leave the place neat. You're going to leave all the bags tied up when you're done. Otherwise, people might start locking up the dumpsters.
1: Who knows? Not all dumpster divers are following lofty ideals.
2: I don't really. I dumpster just because I don't have money to pay for food. I mean, I'm not vegetarian either. I don't really like vegetables.
1: Sure, they have maps and they know where the best spots to go are, but sometimes you don't find anything. It's hit or miss. So when you win, you really feel like you hit the jackpot. Like at this fancy French pastry shop we went to in the East Village.
5: Yo! What are we looking at here? It's lemon cream pie.
1: There were slightly dented tarts, uh, pies that were a little bit flat, eclairs with a, a few coffee grounds that needed to be kind brushed of off.
5: We got raspberries, we got strawberries, we got blackberries.
1: There's something incredible about scarfing down this $10 pastry that you got for free.
5: It's delicious. Oh my god. It's radical. This is like the best dessert I've tasted in months. I come here once a week or so when I want to treat myself
1: Still, there was, there was something sad about the whole endeavor. It isn't the humiliation of being stared at by people as you eat out of the trash. It, it stemmed from the, the vastness of this, this river of trash that was being produced by the city and this, this sense of the enormous gulf between you and the whole rest of society when you decide to dive in. There was just so much trash. And we knew we were never going to be able to rescue at all. So at the end of the night's rounds, we returned. Everyone came back down to the Lower East Side, and we went to the squat. Is this the place? It's a sort of uh, a dumpstered building, an old abandoned school building on the Bowery that they've taken over and moved into. This
5: is a, kind of a dark. quite dark hallway. Got a flashlight?
1: They've pirated electricity from the mm-hmm. building next door.
5: There's a clock, there's a stereo, record player, tape deck, dual tape deck, recorder. We have a toaster, we have a blender.
1: So what are you making right now, Deadbolt? Making a smoothie. Out of what? Bananas. It's really comfortable here. This is the main room. They've made a home for themselves. And it seems like the kind of existence that could go on forever.
2: I guess I could just keep going, you know, like old tramps out in the west. And I know I could do that, but I don't know if that's the kind of life I want to live.
1: That's Paul, remember, the one who doesn't like vegetables.
2: And then my mom bugs me about whether I'm going to settle down. I'm not 18 anymore, I'm not 20, I'm not 22, you know, like, I'm getting older. But, like, after I'm 25, it's just like, I'm not, like, a kid anymore, you know, for some reason. I don't know. Trying to hang out with people that, like, have jobs and work, and, like, they can go out and do things, and you know you can't. You still want to hang out with them, but, like all of a sudden, like, the fact that you don't have money and they do is, like, a very clear line. It's almost like, well, I can't really hang out with you. Can't we just hang out under a bridge, (laughs) you know? Like, can't we just sit on a street corner?
1: Paul may decide this isn't for him. He may feel too disconnected from his friends to keep on dumpster diving. But for the other people who embrace it wholeheartedly, it seems to work. They've created a sort of community outside beyond the frontiers of normal society that everyone else lives in, in which they take care of each other. And that seems to be enough. Why do they do what they do? Is it out of disappointment? Is it out of hope? Who knows? What I do know is that they found a way to make it in the world, and it's by living off of what the rest of us have thrown away.
0: Dumpster Diving. By Matt Power. Today we're devoting the entire show to his radio work, produced over a few years while he was working with WNYC's The Next Big Thing. Coming up after the break, punkin chunkin', drive-ins and drive-outs, and an unusual roller coaster. No tickets no lines.
7: Tell us, Matthew, how was that first ride on the
0: blue flag? It was very fast. <laughs> Stay with us. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. Today, our episode is a tribute to the journalist Matt Power, who passed away in March of 2014. Up to this point in Matt Power's fledgling radio career, he was reporting on what he knew best, his own life. Essentially, eating out of dumpsters and squatting in an artist collective in Long Island City. Unique life, unique voice. Eventually, he began to look elsewhere for quirky stories that captured his curiosity, like this one, about squash and squashing squash in a very loud, big, public way. Perfect Matt Power territory.
7: Punkin' Chunkin! The rise and shine, everybody! We're here to have a good time, and be safe out here!
1: That's right, Punkin' Chunkin. For the last 17 years... and the middle of nowhere, southern Delaware. People have come from all over the country to launch pumpkins, as far as they can, across a giant empty field. They use all manner of devices, and the tensions are high. Competition is pretty fierce.
4: You ain't got the world record yet, because I ain't shot!
1: So here's what this is all about. This huge empty field in the middle of nowhere. It's a stubble field. All the corn has been cut down. Probably a mile square. One side of it is filled with row after row of the most extraordinary devices you've ever seen in your life. Huge cannons. They also use catapults, built in the style of the ancient Romans. Some of these cannons, you have to understand, have a 150-foot barrel. They're mounted on the back of a Mack truck. They're terrifying, the noise. You jump straight up in the air when you hear it. They look like giant metallic insects crawling across the landscape. It's as though a, a group of juvenile dinosaurs have left their toy chests scattered across a farm field. And it's all to shoot this pumpkin the size of a soccer ball.
7: It is kind of like putting a spitball in a straw and going
1: Phew. Except in this case, the spitball goes how far?
7: Well, the uh, record is last year was 4,000 feet. They've only gone about 3,600.
1: This year, 3,700. The whole event attracts an incredible cross-section of the population. On the one hand, you have these Renaissance fair reenactor types who come fully decked out and insist on building their catapults to 2,000-year-old specifications.
0: Oh, this is my uh, medieval garb. It goes with the medieval
4: catapult. My uh, chainmail and helmet... Got my sword here.
0: You got a shield in case I need it.
1: (laughs) And on the other end, you have NRA lifetime members who have a 150 foot cannon, and it's completely painted in camouflage colors called the Second Amendment. You would think the week after Halloween there would be a lot of leftover jack o' lantern pumpkins to use. In fact, it's become so specialized, and the amount of force that's being put on these pumpkins is so great that they don't even use orange pumpkins anymore. They'll fall to pieces. They get atomized as soon as they come out of the barrel of the gun. So they have a special white pumpkin that they grow just for this.
4: A lot of people never seen a white pumpkin, but they've got to come to Delaware. That's, we've grown just specially for pumpkin chunking because the more solid it is, the better it flies, the more G's you can put on it. And at the end of that 40-foot arm, we're putting about five Gs on the pumpkin. So that's five times the the force of
1: gravity. That's comparable to, like, a jet fighter taking off. Right? Uh, actually, it's about equal to a jet fighter doing a roll. <laughs> so. I don't know that much about jet fighters or G-forces or anything, but under the circumstances, you can't help but get caught up in the mood of the event. And there's this sort of a a backyard Dadaism going on, where all this creative energy is being put towards this completely absurd end.
3: There's absolutely no application for this other than the building of it and chucking pumpkins.
1: It's like creation devoid of utility. Yeah. I mean, it has no practical utility,
7: but... It's for its own sake. Like most art. You know, you look at paintings... It is art. This is absolute art. It's for its
1: its own sake. And their imaginations are limited only by their wallets say I was Bill Gates, I would have the technology and the money to build what I really wanted to build, which would be basically a railgun. I mean, the, the military's had railguns for years. They were thinking of using them for launching satellites without rocket technology. So you could put a pumpkin into orbit?
3: Well, I don't know about that. It brings up another problem. What would happen to a pumpkin if it broke the speed of sound? Would the structural integrity of the pumpkin hold up to that?
7: It's an imprecise uh, science, that's for sure, you
1: know. <laughs> It is a dangerous sport. I've watched a pumpkin get mislaunched and go straight up in the air 200 yards, stay there for an instant, and come plummeting back to earth, and it landed about 10 feet away from where the catapult was and where a whole crowd of people were standing. Another one sliced off like a bad golf shot off into the middle of the parking lot. No one's ever been hurt, not to say that you couldn't. In fact, if you got hit with one of these pumpkins, it would kill you. Let me give you an idea just how long these pumpkins are airborne. So there it goes, and it's going up, 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 hits the peak of its arc, heads back down, down, right into the pond about a thousand feet away. Sometimes things don't go as planned. When the pumpkin disintegrates within the barrel, they call that pumpkin pie. Pie, pie, come on in. There's something so infectious about pumpkin Chunkin' that within a matter of minutes, I had crossed over the line and was one of them. I was ready to give advice to anyone, regardless of whether they wanted it. You know what you should do? Tell me. Not that you don't know. But I was thinking And of course I didn't know what he should do. And this guy had spent the last year every afternoon working on his catapult. He humored me, though. But after 10 hours in the pumpkin chunk pits, there's no sight in the world like a pumpkin being shot through the air at 600 miles an hour, soaring over this this pastoral landscape. It might seem kind of loopy, but by the end of the day, I was completely transformed. There's something life-affirming about this, all these weapons of mass destruction used for hurling gourds. The sun went down and everyone packed up and headed home. It was kind of hard to pull myself away. But the next morning I got up and started building my own catapult.
0: Flying Pumpkins by Matt Power Again, former Next Big Thing host, Dean Olsher.
3: This was where I got the sense that Matt was moving out of the world that he was comfortable with and the world that he was from and moving into... Uh, collecting stories from the life outside his own world. And it was the first of those instances where uh, I saw that he had this really whimsical side.
0: You really do, after hearing a piece by him, I feel like you want to be him. I really do feel like you just want to follow him wherever he goes, because wherever he goes, you know it's going to be interesting. Yep.
3: On the back of his motorcycle.
0: Now, we follow Matt straight into small-town Vermont where an old motel is attached to a one-screen 1950 drive-in movie theater. After you check in, you can settle in and watch the movie from your own bed. Here is Drive In, Drive Out.
1: On a summer afternoon, you can walk around out behind the motel, uh, the grassy expanse of the drive-in, totally empty, all these orange speaker poles, and this big, huge white screen that looks like it's about to be swallowed by the woods against the back of the lot. There's nothing quite so post-apocalyptically American as an empty drive-in. There's a sort of weather-beaten sign out front, and it's missing a few letters. So, Turinator Three is supposed to begin at dusk. Now, remember, the drive-in has a motel attached to it, and inside, the decor is typical motel. You have neat stacks of towels in the bathroom. That sort of motel room smell. So here's the crazy thing: there, there's a big picture window in the back of the motel and you can see the drive-in movie from your bed, but from 700 feet it's the exact same size as the TV screen, which is right next to the window. When the Fairleigh drive-in was built, they didn't have televisions in motel rooms. Now of course it has to compete with 150 channels of satellite TV. The point of a drive-in motel is that you get to watch the movie from the comfort of your room. But as everyone starts to arrive, you realize that outside is where everything's happening. This is definitely not the kind of motel you'd want to come to to have an illicit affair or be on the run from the law. Half the town shows up on Saturday nights. Even on rainy Saturday nights like this one, there were couples, carloads of high school kids, a whole family started to arrive.
0: Hallelujah, it ain't raining right now. No, and I hope it doesn't. (laughs) So is that two? Two, please.
1: There were the regulars, like the guy in the pickup truck who hadn't missed a single feature all summer. It's rain or shine, you know, weather doesn't really affect it. Right, right. If it's good weather, we usually sit in the back of the truck, but nights like this, well, a little on the damp side. But you came out anyway, you didn't mind? if Oh yeah, we don't mind. And then there were the people that were revisiting their old haunts. There's a sort of timeless quality to the drive-in. People keep coming back to... Do the things that drive-ins are famous for.
2: And now I get to make out with my wife.
1: <laughs> I mean, you know, this is this is the stuff of youth. Finally, at dusk, that constantly moving target, the show starts. Drive-ins are not about the films, and as the movie played, kids ran around shouting between the cars. It's like a carnival, and there's this sense of unrestricted freedom that descends on all the people that are there. They're kind of beyond the reach of authority. They smoke, they bring their dogs, they bring their kids in their pajamas. One guy even came with a boat attached to the back of his truck. Authority came in the form of Bruce, the security guard, whose job it was to walk around with a flashlight and and try and keep some sort of order. He didn't have much luck reining people in. Bruce is still fuming about the people a few weeks ago who couldn't help but fire
3: up their barbecue in the middle of the film. Of all things, they went to the ticket booth when they first got here and asked if they had fluid, And she said no. She said, you're not supposed to have barbecue or fires anyway. Oh, okay. And back to the car they went. The thing was cherry red come intermission time. They took the cover on it, they threw, off it, they threw hamburgers on it, and there's this smoke billowing up in the middle of the intermission reel.
7: It's like for crying out loud. Not <laughs> you know,
1: this. how numb can some people be? <laughs> With its minor scandals and small-town gossip, the drive-in is sort of a temporary village. All these different permutations of family and couples and friends. It's a sort of town common where everyone comes to participate in civic life, but instead of your local selectmen... It, There's the future governor of California.
4: Desire is
7: irrelevant. I am a machine.
1: Even though these people have never seen this movie before, it's going to seem just as familiar to them as this same intermission reel that's spooled out between double features for the last 50 years.
4: The show starts in seven
1: minutes. You know, you have the ice creams twirling their spoons like majorettes, uh, the candy bars walking back and forth across a tightrope. And there's a hot dog bun, except it's a lion tamer, and it's making this hot dog do tricks. After its routine, the hot dog jumps into the bun. The crowd had no trouble interpreting the thinly veiled symbolism. But after all, sometimes a hot dog is just a hot dog and everybody flocked to the snack bar. Back in the motel, there was an almost unearthly silence. Looking out through the window at the cars, you're watching the happening of the drive-in, not the movie itself. Motel rooms are all about loneliness. And this is ten times worse, because you're looking out at this community out in the parking lot. This is like being in a VIP skybox seat at a baseball game. The view's great, but you don't feel like you're part of the crowd. You you might as well be watching it on television. It's pretty strange to sleep at a drive-in. Long after the last key grip has rolled by in the credits, and the line of cars has pulled out, everyone going to their own homes, You're still there. In the morning, the screen's blank, blindingly white in the summer sunshine, and the field's just populated with dragonflies and crows hopping from speaker pole to speaker pole. You wake up with that sort of motel morning feeling, where you just want to get on the road and get to the next place, wherever that is.
0: Drive In, Drive Out by Matt Power It became clear early on in both Matt Power's radio and print work that he was driven by a sense of adventure. If something piqued his interest, he had to check it out. Like when he heard about a guy who built his own roller coaster in his backyard. Matt rode his motorcycle across the country right into that backyard in Bruceville, Indiana.
1: Actually, I drove right by the first time. It was almost completely hidden by the corn. I had expected some sort of three-story screamer this thing looked more like a jungle gym all you could see is this arch of track looping over the top of a work shed I had traveled halfway across the country for this still I, I wanted to know something about the kind of man who would build a roller coaster in the middle of a cornfield and it turns out that John Ivers had his reasons
7: I love to go to amusement parks and ride the rides but I can't stand waiting in line
1: John Ivers is a practical man He's 50 years old, he's got a head of graying hair and mustache, smokes a lot of cigarettes. His day job, he works at a factory that manufactures grain handling equipment. But on the weekends, he likes to tinker around in his tool shed. Sometime back in 1999, he decided he was going to build a roller coaster. This isn't to say that he was drawing up blueprints or anything.
7: Uh be honest with you, I'm not, uh, not an educated engineer or uh mathematician or anything like that. It was more or less just trial and error.
1: Ivers is modest. People have come on pilgrimages from all over the country to see his roller coaster. Among aficionados, he's a sort of do-it-yourself folk hero, which is kind of funny because the roller coaster has such humble origins. When he started building, he was just using bits and pieces that he had collected in his tool shed. It's a one-person roller coaster, so he had a seat taken out of a minivan which he mounted on this car. And he had a four-inch bulldozer seat belt. And then he painted the whole thing blue when he got a deal on royal blue enamel paint at the local hardware store, hence the name of the Blue Flash. The tracks were built. The coaster was starting to take shape. But he didn't know if it was going to work until he took it for a test ride.
7: So uh, we put a couple sandbags on the car and tried to run it. You know, well, they didn't, the sandbags wanted to fly out in the loop, you know, not stay in there, didn't work real good.
1: So with the sandbags flying off, that wasn't gonna work. So John Ivers did what any self-respecting scientist would do.
7: I just strapped myself in it. Down the hill I went and I come through the loop and I ramped right off the end of the track and landed over there in the yard. And then I knew it was gonna work. So I went ahead and finished it. get her uncovered here. Do you know how fast it gets going? Uh, 20 mile an hour. I had uh, one of the county deputies come out here and clock it one day with his radar gun. Don't sound real fast, but when you're on it, it feels like about 60 or so, you know. It feels pretty good ride. It's pretty good rush.
1: John Ivers knows his roller coaster inside and out. He loves it. He built it. But even the fun part he takes kind of seriously. The time came for him to to take it out for a ride. He stubbed out his cigarette and got into the chair with all the seriousness of a pilot getting into a fighter on the deck of an aircraft carrier.
7: I'll get buckled in here. Sharon's going to fire up the motor and give me a push.
1: His wife Sharon has this broom handle that she uses to push the car forward and get it to engage with the chain that lifts it up to the top of the shed. Yeah, go ahead. So Ivers was pulled up in the car to the roof line of the shed. There he goes, over the top. A second later, the car came zipping around the side. And immediately, he was pulled up into a 360-degree loop, zoomed down underneath the elm tree. And bang, it was back at the beginning where he had started.
7: Uh, so how'd that feel? Great. This is the only way to spend a Sunday afternoon.
1: Nobody's indifferent about roller coasters. They either violently dislike them or they're attracted like moths to a flame. How many times have you ridden it, would you say? gosh. I
7: have no idea. Hundreds. (laughs) Hundreds.
1: How about you? How many times have you ridden it? I
0: have not ever ridden it.
1: You've never ridden it one time?
0: I'm afraid of heights, and I don't like the feel of your stomach falling. That terrifies me, so forget it. (laughs)
1: Now, it's bound to give you a pause when the woman who's married to this guy refuses to get on his roller coaster. But the time had come to go for a ride. Ivers has ridden this roller coaster hundreds of times. I think for him, it's no longer about the adrenaline rush. It's almost a form of stress relief. Riding the roller coaster actually makes him feel better. For the rest of us, it's a different experience. There's no waiting in line. There isn't this long anticipatory build-up. It's just you and the roller coaster. You sit down in the bucket seat. Well,
7: just uh, keep your feet inside the car and your hands on the bar.
1: Your knees are all jammed up against the steel, and there's this sort of eerie finality when you click the belt buckle shut. When you hit the loop, lean to the, the car way. engages with the chain and drags you up the hill. It's like lazy boy meets the Spanish Inquisition. Oh, man. There's no time to breathe or think before you get tossed over the edge.
3: Shit!
7: So, uh, well, tell us, Matthew, how was that first ride on the Blue Flash? It was very fast. <laughs> you want to try it again while you're here?
1: Well, I guess if I'm only gonna, yeah. There's this amazing moment when you're strapped into the seat of the blue flash, and you come up to the peak of the roof, and you just pause for a split second in between these two drifting American flags. You can see all the cornfields in every direction. From that moment, you're the the highest thing in the whole landscape. Uh, It's a great view of the cornfields from up here. It's a complete change of perspective, and then whoosh. You're down the hill, and the ride's over in five seconds.
7: <laughs> That's enough. Not
1: bad for a little homemade coaster, huh? No, I guess it's not. It's pretty amazing. Ivor's is proud of his roller coaster, justifiably so. You limp away, reeling, blood pounding in your ears, but you feel totally alive. The sunshine seems brighter, the smell of mown grass is more intense. In a way, the thing about the blue flash that makes it so remarkable is how ordinary it is. It's not an engineering feat, it's not a get-rich-quick scheme, it's not even the work of a fanatic who did it to settle a bet or because people said it couldn't be done. It's just an assemblage of spare parts put together so a man could have some fun after work.
7: Nothing wrong with a good roller coaster ride.
1: No tickets, no waiting in line.
0: Free Ride by Matt Power, whose timeless work we're celebrating today. Again, Dean Olsher.
3: The idea that that uh, you know people on the radio can be surrogates for us—that's why I listen to the radio, and um, and I feel that there's so much to be gained by having somebody out there having an experience and then translating it for us through their words. Uh, that is such a valuable thing. And, and Matt embodied that so
0: well. Dean Ulcher, former host of WNYC's The Next Big Thing and current host of The Really Big Questions by Sound Vision Productions. You can find a link to both of Dean's shows and more of Matt Power's work on our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. Matt Power was a prolific writer and will be remembered by most for his magazine stories. A trek into Tasmania, riding along with the U.S. Medivac Corps in Afghanistan, reporting on drug-resistant malaria in Cambodia. But I also hope people will continue to take time to hear his voice, his tone, his lilt, his serenity, and his soft grit. Because that said so much. At Third Coast, we feel we're better for having heard him. And I, for one, will never forget him. Matt Power. I'm standing
1: up on top of a pedestrian walkway above one of the busiest intersections in Delhi right now.
0: 1974 to 2014.
1: There's also animals, whole packs of wild dogs, monkeys. And if a cow comes up, everyone will stop dead to avoid hitting it. People who hit cows have been known to be lynched on the streets of Delhi. Hindu fundamentalists don't approve of running over of cows. Uh, About 80,000 people are killed every year in car accidents in India. It has the highest rate in the world, which isn't such a puzzling statistic when you actually experience a day riding around the New Delhi traffic. For me, I think I can understand human nature and and my place in the universe a little bit better in the hecticness of all this traffic than I could by sitting still for 10 hours.
0: Since Matt's death in 2014, New York University has started the Matthew Power Literary Reporting Award to help writers with as singular an approach as Matt's. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxai. The program is produced by Dennis Funk and curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. Support for ReSound also comes from Whole Foods Market, with new locations in Streeterville and DePaul, supplying a wide variety of natural and organic groceries. You can find all the latest news about Whole Foods Market openings at WFM.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Riva and David Logan Foundation and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.